0: Welcome to this episode of One Book at a Time, the Manchester University Press podcast. Time to slow down, consider the issues, learn the histories and exercise your brain in the open air of considered judgment and frontline thinking. And help us change the world one book at a time. If you want to know where a quarter of the UK's carbon emissions will come from before 2050, then go outside and look up. Aviation has for a long time been one of the villains in the fight against climate change. And the UK government claims a commitment to be a climate leader. So when MPs voted in 2018 to approve plans for a third runway at Heathrow, something didn't add up. How can a government stay within its own climate targets whilst welcoming a further 700 planes a day into its airspace? Climate activists wanted answers. I'm Dr Janet Ashton. I'm a lecturer in Heritage Studies at the University of Manchester with an interest in social and environmental justice. And in this episode, I'm talking to an author who witnessed what happened when climate activists took this question to the courts. Her name is Celeste Hicks, and her book is called Expansion Rebellion.
1: The book tells the story of a legal challenge which was launched in 2019, which basically tried to say that if you're going to build a third runway at Heathrow Airport, which would by definition involve an extra quarter of a million planes coming to the UK every year, how could you do that in a climate emergency when we know that aviation is one of the biggest uh, sources of carbon dioxide emissions? The lawyers wanted to show that the UK had signed the, the 2015 Paris Agreement, which was committing everybody to try to aim for 1.5C, so that to be the limit of the temperature increases. And if you were going to put all these extra quarter of a million planes in the sky, what was the carbon and the non-CO2 impact of, of that? And how could you possibly keep within the bounds of the Paris Agreement? So very technically what the lawyers showed was actually the UK government used a two degree temperature limit instead of the 1.5 limit and that was proved in court. So in February 2020 the, the, the case was won at the Court of Appeal mm-hmm. uh, and it was established that that's what had happened. Unfortunately, after the pandemic, there was a a case at the Supreme Court launched by Heathrow Airport challenging that, and they actually won the challenge. But the the book does look at that and sort of puts that in context. But the the real substance of the victory was that the lawyers were able to show that if the UK has signed this Paris Agreement and said it's going to be a climate leader, you can't just keep building projects and doing Mm -hmm. these massive infrastructure projects without being able to properly account for the carbon impact of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I felt like I, I learned a, a huge amount reading this book because you managed to really succinctly draw together, um, you know, some really complex legal processes that, that are going on here and 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 thinking about the opportunities and challenges for, for legal action. How did you get involved?
1: I've written a couple of other books and one of them was about a legal case in Africa where the former Chadian dictator Hissen Habre was jailed after a complex legal process in West Africa and despite not having any background in the legal world I kind of started to realise that these kind of what are called strategic litigation cases where basically the aim of the case is not so much about the the case itself it's about getting the wider narrative out there and so I was interested in that kind of story because I found like legal cases very definite it's a very tangible thing that you can understand Fast forward a couple of years, I was working at Friends of the Earth in the communications department there. Uh, And when Friends of the Earth launched this case, I was involved in trying to sort of explain it on the website. So I was helping the lawyers to kind of do the explainer about what the case was about. And obviously they were able to tell me all this fantastic, brilliant, detailed stuff. But it was my job to try and sort of say, why should we care about this? And I started to see all these parallels with like, actually, you were trying to tell this much bigger story about climate change commitments and this idea of, making all these like promises but then the government not being held to account if it broke the promises that's really what climate action is about the UK has made some pretty good commitments and pretty high targets for decarbonisation but if we don't do them if we don't achieve them they're basically not worth anything so I like the idea of one case, which was really high profile, telling this strategic story about actually we need mm. to think about everything now. We need to make sure all of these big infrastructure projects are brought in line with our commitments. We're in a climate emergency. We've made these massive commitments. You can't just make them and then do the complete opposite. So, yeah. so yeah, it was, it was a combination of that sort of background and interest in that sort of strategic action and also just having had the experience of working with the lawyers.
0: But for people who don't know what judicial review and strategic climate litigation is, are you able to give a a little bit of an explanation around that as to how it holds authorities to account or or the potential for it to hold authorities to account? In the UK,
1: there's not that many sort of legal avenues for people wanting to challenge government decisions. Um, In other countries, there are other things like class actions that lawyers can take but in the UK it really boils down to judicial review and so a judicial review is basically a review of the way that the decision was made by the government body and so it's not a review of whether the decision was correct or not as in a morally correct judgment it's just a, a review of was the correct legal process followed this basically makes it very very powerful in the sense that it's very targeted and very detailed and you can go really very Closely in on a, on a point and win on a point, and you can build the whole strategy around that. But you have to be able to show that the decision's being done incorrectly. There are lots of sort of decisions that feel wrong but haven't actually been done against the laws. So it's in that sense is very limited. So actually, there's not that many things that you can judicially review. So the judicial review point in this one was that the government was supposed to use the Paris Agreement 1.5 C temperature limit, and actually it, it used the two degrees C. Um, so in that sense, it was very strategic and targeted because they proved something quite huge. But when I got into writing the book and going back into the detail, it was like, oh. Okay, this is really complicated. And actually the Supreme Court took all the same facts that the court of appeal had, had taken and had a different interpretation of them mm. um so that's quite challenging because you know you can say well one judge thought this and another judge thought that about how the, the decision was made judicial review is very interesting at the moment because the government's trying to limit the power of judicial review so even if a judge finds that the, the decision by a government minister has been made incorrectly the current government are trying to change the rules so that government can just decide to not take much notice of the of the mm. rulings, which is obviously really worrying. And, and a part of the reason for that is there's been various judicial reviews which have been very strategic and very high profile, such as the one about the prorogation of Parliament. When Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament, there was a judicial review into that which found that he had done, basically broken the law by doing that. So obviously, the government fee- are feeling the heat on judicial review, even though it's a very targeted thing. So it's actually very technical, very legal, but actually it's very political and important at the moment and
0: and climate litigation then so what's this kind of wider movement within the legal system or different types of lawyers taking up climate litigation what's what's that
1: yeah so it's it's really a strategic form of litigation and when we say strategic litigation what we mean by that is a case which is basically built on the idea of proving a particular point in society so this case was trying to prove that if you are going to commit to all these amazing climate targets and decarbonisation targets. If you're going to do that as a government, you then have to act upon what you've committed to. So the strategic aim of these cases is to show, well, you can't just go and say one thing and do another. So that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about strategic litigations. So there's lots of really interesting developments in this area at the moment. The net zero strategy was was challenged in the judicial review. So the government published its net zero strategy in, in 2021, sort of saying, this is how we're going to meet our net zero commitments. And actually, they lost in the High Court. Again, there was another judicial review that said, well, you've said all this stuff, but actually you haven't done the maths. You haven't done proper policies. It's not really carefully hammered out how you're actually going to achieve these very important goals of reaching net zero by 2050. So what you see there is basically a group of lawyers from different organisations. So in this case, it was Client Earth, Friends of the Earth and Good Law Project, who've all kind of done these cases individually. And now coming together and launching these these judicial reviews on many, many grounds. So that's kind of one of the problems in writing my book was that there were five different claimant groups all having their own judicial review claims running at the same time so the judge put them all into one hearing so you know there were 22 separate points legal points that were being challenged so obviously you can imagine trying to get your head around each one of those 22 points and explain what happened in each of them was that was really quite challenging and but that's where it's going now because obviously any legal action is really expensive and time consuming so Campaign groups are thinking actually to get together and do one big case, which works on everybody and each each group sort of picks their own line Mm -hmm. is actually the way things are evolving now.
0: One of the issues that you raise time and time again is this sort of challenge around aviation and cutting flying as being a really difficult one to sell (laughs) to the general public. Um, You give some really important statistics in there around flying, you know, who is doing it and how often.
1: One of the things I found writing the book was there were just many, many moments where I just thought, why does nobody know this? And I didn't know it before I started researching it. Often aviation is sort of sold as like, well, everybody wants to go on their sunshine break. And, you know, there's all these kind of hardworking British families who, are, you know, they're only flying abroad once a year. Why do you want to stop them going on their holiday and make it too expensive? And they, ha- they can only go places they can get on the train or stay in the UK, whatever. So it's sort of presented as like everybody's got this right to fly. But when you really get into it, it's actually a really tiny proportion of people who are causing most of the emissions from aviation. In the UK in 2018, only half the population actually took a plane. And of that sort of half the population that flew and the other half didn't fly at all, it was 15% of that 50% were causing 70% of the emissions. So that's like a small group of luxury aviation, you know, holiday flyers who are taking up a huge amount of the aviation emissions. So, you know, sometimes that's people flying eight, nine, ten times a year, transatlantic flights several times a year. Obviously, there are people who are still going on their one sunshine break a year. But actually, what I under started to understand was it's actually quite socially unjust. The spread of responsibility for aviation emissions lays very firmly in richer people. So the richer you are, the more you emit aviation emissions. So that was kind of one thing that really, really sort of struck me. What I wanted to do with the book was to just try to get that across, to just say, nobody's saying don't fly and nobody's saying you have to stop flying or going on you one sunshine break a year. But the question really is, do we need to expand anything? Because mm. you know, before the pandemic, people were doing that amount of flying And actually of those people that only fly once or twice a year, do they really want to fly any more than that? Can they afford to fly any more than that? So all you're doing by increasing capacity is like massively increasing the ability of the richest people to fly even more and cause an even bigger disproportionate amount of emissions. And actually another thing that was interesting about just sort of myth busting in terms of what you're talking about, one of the things again was a real eye opener for me was that if Heathrow expansion goes ahead, Something like 70% of the people that are going to be using that terminal and the planes are coming in don't actually come into the UK. They're just using Heathrow as a hub airport. So it might be people flying from European destinations and then taking a a transatlantic flight and changing in in the UK. At the time that the consultations were going ahead about which project, was it Gatwick or was it Heathrow? People were saying, well, you know, this is going to be brilliant for British business. It's going to be a huge boon to the economy. And actually most of the economic advantage only goes to the airport because all of those people who are only passing through Heathrow Airport of course they don't come into the UK they don't leave the airport they only buy goods and services while they're waiting for their layover flight it's actually not filtering down maybe it's creating some extra jobs but You know, it's not creating good quality jobs, it's creating the kind of jobs that will just be dropped immediately as soon as the next thing comes along. When you look at the economic projections, one of the sort of cost benefit analysis that looked into the impact of Heathrow Airport and if the third runway was built, how much money could the UK economy hope to see? One analysis, which was kind of the central scenario, came out with £1 billion worth of impact over 60 years. The project was going to cost 18 billion at least to build it. And you are like, wow. So even the Department of Transport were looking at 1 billion pounds of benefit over 60 years. You know, and that was before the carbon impacts of the project were really properly monetized. And now the carbon values that the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, they've doubled since the, the Heathrow Airport was given the go-ahead by Parliament. So that's gone from 50 billion to 100 billion. So, you know, if you do that calculation again, based on twice the carbon cost of, mm. of the airport expansion, you're really just like, well, who is this benefiting other than shareholders of the airport who are going to get? The landing fees, you know, the excess landing fees, which are, by the way, some of the most expensive landing <laughs> fees in Europe, it's only the shareholders of a foreign-owned company are going to be the people that benefit from this, not us because the money's not coming into the UK, not the people that who work at the airport because those jobs got dropped like hot potatoes as soon as there was a kind of problem. Even the economic analysis didn't really stack up
0: at all. and and something that your book does again really brilliantly I think is to put you know different kind of human faces on the different elements of this complexity and and these kind of myths that that are rolling around so yeah we're introduced to a lot of interesting kind of human interest elements so we've got local residents we've got some kind of key characters from some of the legal team then you position the wider XR and youth strike mobilization in, in the background of all of this I don't know if you want to talk about any of the individuals you kind of came across so there's kind of Justine Bailey, who's a who's a local resident, there's a a really beautiful little section that you wrote, actually, I'm I'm just going to read it here if, if that's okay. And you were talking about being in Justine's kitchen. Um, and watching the birds in the back garden. And, and you you say that many of those who are opposed to the plans have lived in the area a long time. And the real problem for them is exhaustion. For more than 20 years, there has been no respite from uncertainty. And, and that really resonated, I think, you know, for me thinking about different campaigns that are being fought across Manchester, for example, you know, around development and so on. So yes, we've got Justine, we've got Tim. So any thoughts from you on, on those characters? You're right that the,
1: basically the, the the fight against Heathrow expansion has been going on for 20 years. I mean, I reflected on that There's a section where I told the history of that. But all of these campaigners who thought that there was going to be a third runway were told definitively in 2010 by David Cameron when he took over at the head of the coalition government. There would be no third runway and they were promised that explicitly by David Cameron. And then three years later they launched a new consultation to expanding these Airport. So, you know, there was this enormous campaign in the in the twenty hundreds or whatever we call that, the noughties or the two thousands <laughs> where where basically the campaigners mobilized all this amazing stuff and did all kinds of great stunts and great, you know, extremely exhausting campaign. And then they thought they'd won in 2010. And then three years later, it, it was all open again. And so, yeah, Justine is somebody who's been at the forefront of that numerous times. Every time that happens, she's got to somehow find the energy to fight it. And I went to the village to see where she lived. And it, it is quite divided. There were some people there who were kind of like, well, we've been doing this for 20 years. We're kind of done, you know, actually... Mm. We'll just take the money compensation for our house and we're going to go because the whole community is being divided by this. And there are people like Justine who are like, but this is my home and I've lived here my whole life. And so, yes, it was kind of sad to just see that. And, and when, I, when I proposed the book it was actually just after the appeals court victory. And it looked like that was the end. Actually, the appeals court victory looked so final. People were really thinking it'd be very difficult for the Supreme Court to overturn that, but unfortunately that's what happened. So it was all opened again, you know, this wound was opened again for people. So yeah, I've got nothing but the utmost respect. There's many, many different campaign groups, Stop Ether Expansion, No Third Runway Coalition. You know, there's all groups who've been campaigning, Friends of the Earth, local groups have been campaigning there for 20 years. Um, so, you know, the amount of energy that's gone into that, I've nothing but respect for those people. Uh, But yeah, and like another interesting character was Tim Crosland, who was one of the lawyers. When the Supreme Court verdict came out in December 2020, um, he leaked it the night before on Twitter, which is basically a contempt of court. Um, And he did it on purpose um, because he wanted to protest against it because he thought the Supreme Court was so um, outrageous that he wanted to just draw attention to it. And he got a lot of flack for that. You know, why bother? Like, people were going to hear about it the next day. He said, well, you know, I wanted to make a story for basically breaking the law myself. I wanted to kind of be the story so that I could highlight the issues. And so he's taken kind of quite a lot of personal flack for that. And it's been quite difficult for him. And he lost his case eventually and was fined, I think, something like £15,000 for the contempt of court. But, you know, I, I was interested in the fact that he did do that because I think he was right during that, you know, this sort of second wave of the pandemic and towards that Christmas 2020 when everybody was worrying what was going to happen to their Christmas holidays. It probably would have just been buried and yeah. wouldn't have made big news apart from in local communities. And, you know, what I thought was striking about that Supreme Court case, which was basically when the Court of Appeal case, which is the main subject of my book, that was the lawyers, you know, the campaign group lawyers I'm talking about taking the government to court. And at the end of that appeal court victory, the government said, you know what? We did use the two degrees C limit. We shouldn't have done, we'll do it again on the 1.5 C limit. So the government accepted that they'd done it incorrectly and had offered to go back and do it again called the airport's national policy statement basically was the policy document behind Mm -hmm. Heathrow expansion. They, They said, okay, we'll go and redraw that document up again based on the 1.5 C limit. And that was kind of where it ended. And then there was a pandemic and obviously the world kind of went a bit mad then. Mm. But basically Mm. the Supreme Court case was Heathrow Airport. So a private company, which is owned mostly by foreign shareholders, the Singapore National Wealth Corporation, which is kind of, you know, the Singapore investment bonds. Farovio, which is a Spanish company, Spanish transport company. FGP, Topco is another like parent company of all these companies. You know, it was a private company that took that appeal court verdict back to the Supreme Court. So it wasn't the government, wasn't the government appealing, the government had accepted it.
0: And just to think about how you start to sort of finish up the book, you you kind of settle on, on sort of interrogating some of the, the options on various solutions proposed for aviation emissions. So, you know, in this kind of slightly false hope of sustainable growth. <laughs> so yeah, any thoughts on that?
1: So the jet zero strategy came out coincidentally on that day that the 40 degrees centigrade was hit for the in the UK for the first time. that that came out on the same day. So the irony of that was not missed. That strategy really is, the best way to describe it, is techno-optimistic. So there's a lot of faith being put in developing technologies rather than trying to persuade anybody not to fly or to shrink the growth of airports or anything like that. It does really seem like the government's ideologically committed to not wanting to ever have to say to people, you have to change your behaviour. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff about sustainable aviation fuel um, which is basically either biofuels or there's some things called e-fuels, which are made by electrolysis using electricity and water. There's that, there's electric planes, there's airspace modernisation. I mean, probably the most advanced of those, because that really just means changing the way that flights paths are used and trying to be a bit more efficient so that planes don't circle around and waste fuel. Um, but sustainable aviation fuel, I mean, we're only looking at trying to get up to about 10% by mm-hmm. 2030 of the fuel that's used it's not very much and, yeah, and scratch you know, the
0: surface yeah.
1: yeah and people talk about e-fuels which is using electricity to do electrolysis to create the fuel and in that case one transport and environment which is an NGO that kind of looks at very technical reports about how sort of fuels are used estimated that if you wanted to replace all the fuel that's currently used in the EU with e-fuels you'd have to have eight times the current capacity of renewable energy installed and all of that renewable energy would be only making aviation fuels. That's how much aviation fuel is currently used. So, you know, you're thinking, okay, fine. By 2030, that there's no way in the world that that's gonna be possible. You know, you talk about carbon capture and storage. People talk about pulling the carbon dioxide out of the air. It seems so simple. There's currently only one plant in the whole world in Iceland, which is doing that. And it's annual capacity for sucking carbon out of the atmosphere is 4,500 tonnes a year. And if you have a private jet, the average private jet user is generating 7,500 tons a year. So basically the whole world's capacity for carbon capture at the moment, direct out of the atmosphere is half the annual emissions of one private jet owner mm. so you're kind of like wow yeah, when, you, when you do it, those kind of comparisons that, yeah, that really like brings it into perspective yeah there was one calculation which was done by the new economics foundation which I, I can't remember exactly the figure but i think it was like if you wanted to do all of aviation emissions by direct capture by 2030 you would need to scale up the current capacity by six thousand two hundred and fifty <laughs> times by 2030 in the future these technologies will be Critical, and we will need everything we can come up with. But you know, it, it really does to me feel irresponsible for a government strategy to be relying on stuff that hasn't been developed yet. Fully electric, long haul planes are even the airlines aren't thinking that they're going to happen before 2050. So, you know, the yeah. only option available is to not fly as much, or yeah, at least like you say, it's not, it's
0: not about. Everybody having to kind of stop their like one yeah. holiday a year. It's about those real frequent flyers and and that yeah. sort of yeah extensive consumerism and and growth behavior.
1: Even if you don't expand the airport, we're still flying. Those people are still flying more than they ever can with the current capacity. So you know why do you need another quarter of a million planes? That, yeah, you know, that's really what it's about.
0: So what's next for the the Heathrow campaign? I mean, has it kind of settled now? But is it still rumbling on what's what's next for all of that
1: it's still rumbling on unfortunately for people like Justine and all of the campaigners the last sort of installment was at the Supreme Court when it was established that if Heathrow wanted to put in a what's called a development consent order which was basically the the piece of paper that says we want to do this development here's all the mitigation plans for noise Congestion at the airport, air pollution, and carbon impacts. This is all the things that we're going to put in place to make sure that we sort of meet all our obligations. And then the government then discusses that and analyses their proposals and says whether they think they're adequate or not. So at the moment, he throws free to put in that development consent order because the legal challenge was supposed to basically make the government go back and write it on the 1.5 rather than the two degree temperature limit. But when it was over- overturned at the Supreme Court, that then re established the original two degree Mm. so they will have to meet that when you're looking at that and you're saying okay we need to meet this two degree temperature limit you know how much of our national budget carbon budget can we spend on aviation well it was basically worked out that in the the two degree centigrade world it was 37.5 megatons of emissions from aviation in the whole UK per year since we went to net zero it's now down to something like 23 megatons per year so there's basically an, an acknowledgement that aviation will not be completely net zero. So there will have to be things like carbon capture and, you know, technologies still will have to be happening in 2050. Um, but in the old world, when we were talking about two degrees up until 2018, Heathrow was saying, well, yeah, we can totally meet two degrees. And I remember when I went off to do the research, I was thinking, well, how? I mean, how, how is it like another 250,000 planes a year? How on earth do you not say that you're going to actually go way over the budget? Because, you know, the DFT, the Department for Transport Projections, were saying that with an expanded Heathrow, it would be 40 megatons, not 37. And then the penny dropped that basically, up until at least 2018, Heathrow was trying to argue that you didn't have to take into consideration the emissions from the actual planes that were going to use the runway. So Heathrow was only saying... Our airport will be carbon neutral because it was talking about the actual airport. So we're talking about things like using electric vehicles, electric baggage handling, what, whatnot. But it not taking into account the actual yeah. planes. <laughs> so you, we, we built the, wow. air, the airport itself or the, or the third runway itself is carbon neutral, but we're not going to include the emissions from the planes that are coming in, which were 95% of the projected impact wow. of the project up until 2018 everybody was saying okay fine well you know there were, there were lots of complicated reasons which were not entirely invalid for that but that's how these things are done somebody was basically mm. saying well actually I know it's huge 95% of the emissions is huge we can't possibly explain that but we don't have to so we'll just say that actual tarmac and terminal <laughs> building is carbon neutral and you were like yeah. wow Actually, the planes do need to be included now. That was established in the legal case, which was a really, really important point. So, Heathrow now, if it does want to put that development consent order in, it needs to say, this is what we're going to do to mitigate the emissions, 95% of the impact of the project, which they didn't have to do before. So, obviously, it's going to be a lot more difficult. Obviously, it's going to cost them a lot more money. So I would say at the moment, clearly with all the problems that Heathrow is having in terms of, you know, the passenger fall during the pandemic, the lack of capacity, the bad press it's getting at the moment, the flight cancellations. I would imagine nobody in the company is that desperate to try to put a huge development consent order application in now, which is obviously going to cost them a lot of money. But, you know, if things improve, they could do it again. And, you know, then we're going to be into another round of legal challenges.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Manchester University Press podcast, one book at a time. If you like what you've heard, please check out the MUP website www.manchesteruniversitypress.co.uk where you can find and order a copy of this book and many others like it. Don't forget to follow us on all major social media platforms and subscribe to our newsletter for 30% off all our books.